We are continuing our series on Millennialism 101, and we finally come to Revelation chapter 20, which is really the key passage in any discussion of millennial positions, because this is the one text where uh, John actually mentions the 1,000 years, and this passage is really the uh, passage that is the hotbed of discussion when you talk about eschatology. Um, the author Hebrew, uh, of Ecclesiastes has said, of the making of books, there is no end, and I'm sure he had in mind uh, Bible prophecy books, because you go to the Christian bookstore and there are a gazillion books on Bible prophecy. This is still a, a hot topic. People are interested in this topic. Um, books sell. Books get reprinted. Um, this is still a, a cash cow for uh, Christian publishers. And I think the author of Ecclesiastes probably had prophecy books in mind when he made that quip because uh, this single chapter of the book of Revelation has produced more uh, discussion probably than any other uh, passage in the Bible. Um, and this, as I mentioned, this is the only place where the thousand years are specifically mentioned. Now, advocates of each of the major political, uh, political, each of the major theological positions, boy, that was a Freudian slip, uh, the author uh, of the, uh, the advocates of each of the millennial positions, uh, a, pre, and post, all offer their own distinctive interpretations of this passage. But I really don't think there's anything like a consensus anymore. It used to be in mainstream evangelicalism that premillenarians dominated. And on the reform side, there was about a 50-50 all-mill, post-mill split. And then there were a few... Uh, liberals, Protestant liberals mainly, who were kind of secular post-millennial types that there'd be a golden age uh, brought about by uh, the spread of the gospel and the brotherhood of man. So there's, there's really a, a broad a variety of opinion, and I think things have changed. So it's really hard to, to kind of label that um, anymore. I don't see any one position as dominant. Uh, I'm in evangelical circles where I'm surprised at the number of people that are all millennial in those circles. And I'm, I'm in reform circles and surprised to see um, as many post-millenarians as I do. So it, it's just all over the board, and uh, there's really not one single position nor a consensus. Now, we start with the various interpretations of Revelation chapter 20, and I'll do just uh, a brief overview. Um, in line with their a priori commitment to a literal interpretation of Scripture, the critical issue for our dispensational friends is that the symbols and numbers in Revelation chapter 20 are to be interpreted according to their natural meaning, and I'm quoting John Walvoord, unless the context clearly indicates otherwise. So, when John says that Satan is bound with a chain, he means a real chain. When John says the devil is bound for a thousand years, he means a literal 1,000 years and that God's adversary is somehow physically restrained. That's, that's the dispensational hermeneutic. That's how they read the passage. And so if the symbols are not taken in this literal sense, our dispensational friends are afraid that the symbols then can be distorted and twisted to mean just about anything the interpreter wishes for them to mean. And so they see this as a weakness in amillennialism especially, because they'll argue that you can basically take these symbols and make them into any kind of a, a wax nose you wish and get them to say whatever you want them to say. But that overlooks the question of genre. 
And that is, what kind of writing is the book of Revelation and how are we to interpret a book with such highly symbolic language and especially with a style of writing called apocalyptic in which symbols are used for very important reasons. And so before we can go through the passage in detail, which we'll do next week, Lord willing, uh, we're going to do all the preliminary stuff uh, this lecture. And uh, that means getting at uh, how we read the book of Revelation, what we do with the kind of literature we find therein. Now, for premillenarians, including classical dispensationalists and progressive dispensationalists and historic premillenarians, the major interpretive issue has to do with the fact that what is depicted in Revelation chapter 20 is yet future and will not occur until after the return of Christ and the first resurrection. So, for our premillennial friends, they have the return of Christ. Christ returns and sets up the 1,000-year millennial reign before the judgment. So, we're still this side of the second coming of Christ. The period depicted here in Revelation chapter 20 is still completely off in the future. And it means then that Revelation chapter 20 follows chronologically after Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, of course, includes the description of the second advent of Christ. So, on its face, premillenarians have a very strong argument. If Revelation chapter 19 describes the second coming of Christ, then Revelation chapter 20 would describe a period of time after Christ comes back. And that is, I think, for most people, the strongest reason to be premillennial. And I think we're going to see, as we go through our time tonight, why that argument is not nearly as strong as it appears at first glance and why it actually works against uh, the dispensational premillennial or historic premillennial or progressive dispensationalist interpretation. Now, postmillenarians agree with premillenarians that the events of Revelation 19 chronologically precede the events of Revelation chapter 20. So, the millenarian position, either pre or post, looks at this uh, in, in similar ways, surprisingly similar ways. Now, for certain varieties of postmillenarians, many of whom adopt what we call a historicist interpretation of the book of Revelation, the apocalypse is seen as a kind of a theological map which charts the future course of church history. So if you're a historicist, which is the position classically taken by Protestants, the book of Revelation maps out the general course of history after Christ returns, and it centers on Revelation chapter 17 and 18, which is Babylon the Great. Babylon the Great is the city with seven hills. Babylon the Great is almost identified by virtually all Protestant exegetes up until recently as the Roman Catholic Church. That's a very standard and common Protestant interpretation. It's also found in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Postmillenarians argue along those lines generally, and they'll say that um, Revelation 19:11 and following is a description of Jesus Christ riding the white horse of judgment, but it's not the second coming but symbolic of the triumph of the gospel throughout the church age and the means by which the nations are Christianized. And this is based upon Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, that speaks of the word of God as living and active and a double-edged sword. So what this means is that postmillenarians will say that at some point in this current age, the gospel goes to the ends of the earth and effectively Christianizes the nations so that a period of universal peace, a period of universal progress of the gospel culture 
politics, all of life, will occur on the earth before Christ comes back. So, obviously, given the state of affairs in the world today, even for post-millenarians, the millennium must be yet future. And so, that particular position, the millennium is yet future, is shared by both pre- and post-millenarians. And so, even though they differ about the relationship of the millennium to the return of Christ, uh, post-millenarians believe Christ comes back at the end of the thousand years. Nevertheless, for both schools, the millennial age is at some point in the future and has not yet begun. Now, another approach to this uh, notion of looking at the book of Revelation has become popular again, and that's a position known as preterism. And if you've heard me lecture on this topic before, you know that I, when I speak of the book of Revelation, I don't make the distinction between hyper-preterism or full-preterism and partial-preterism because hyper-preterism is, I regard, and full-preterism is a heresy. It denies the bodily resurrection of believers. It denies the bodily return of Christ. But the preterist school in general, including all of those who argue that Christ came back in judgment on national Israel and the, Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70, I, I just lumped them all together for the sake of, of being clear. And that is, anyone who takes a preterist view of the book of Revelation believes that Revelation was completed before the events of AD 70. So the preterist read is to say everything in the book of Revelation is describing uh, the events surrounding the uh, destruction of uh, Israel and refers to uh, Babylon the Great as apostate Israel. Now, this is in marked contrast to our dispensational friends who push everything off into the future Preterists push everything back into the past before the destruction of Jerusalem. And so for preterists, the cataclysm judgment is not the second coming of Christ yet future. It's the death and resurrection at Christ's first coming. It's the cross that defeated Satan and crushed his head. And therefore, the coming of the kingdom, Jesus has progressively bound Satan through worldwide preaching of the gospel. And that will go on one day until the nations are Christianized. And so at the end of time, immediately before Christ comes back, there's a brief period of apostasy. So um, all of those views uh, are popular. You find them uh, today, and you can see how greatly they're going to differ from the amillennial uh, position. Basically, amillennarians believe that the thousand years is a symbolic period of time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. So, Revelation chapter, chapter 20 describes the entire interadvenal period, the entire period of time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. So, you can call this an amillennial interpretation or a non-millennial interpretation, but the argument is the passage is a symbolic uh, reference to the interadvenal period that the thousand years is not a literal 1,000 years, and it's not future, it's a present reality. Now, what do we do with symbols in the book of Revelation? I'd like to spend quite a bit of time on uh, this question because we need to ask whether these symbols are to be read literally or figuratively. And how we answer that question will go a long way in helping us to settle uh, the various interpretive questions that are raised by this book. If you've ever read through the book of Revelation, I would encourage you to do so. I'd encourage you all to read it, and I would encourage you all to listen to it. If you have a Bible on MP3, 
Um, this is one book that you get an entirely different sense when you hear it than when you read it. This is not historical narrative. The symbols are very vivid, very graphic. And when you hear this letter read, you'll find a different kind of cadence and different things emphasized than you do when you read it. It's really remarkable how they almost are two different books, reading and hearing. So uh, I would encourage you all to, to do that. Um, John doesn't intend us to read this as we would read the morning newspaper. Uh, this is not a historical text. It's not even like the Gospel, say the Gospel of Matthew, where you have this alternating pattern between a historical narrative and the sayings of Jesus. This is a different book altogether. We can't look at the book of Revelation like we would look at the prophecies of Nostradamus. Um, this book doesn't, it's not intended to tell the future. It speaks about future events, but it's not fortune-telling. It's not prophecy in the sense that John predicts all of the course of future events. And, you know, I'm sorry, but our folks, at, our, our friends at A&E and History Channel, Discovery Channel, and National Geographic, who love doing these wild programs on the book of Revelation, are just crazy because that's not the way the book was intended to be read. It doesn't tell us about the rise of NATO. It doesn't tell us anything about the formation of Israel in the post-World War II period. It doesn't tell us of anything about the days immediately before the rapture. And it's not written to warn people who are uh, present when the Antichrist appears after signing his peace treaty with Israel and forces us to take his mark. It's not about any of those things. The book of Revelation is very much like Ezekiel or Daniel or parts of Zechariah. It combines distinctly and unique biblical genres together for the purpose of explaining the course of redemptive history from God's perspective. This is a big picture book about the course of history, broadly speaking, not specific events within history in a detailed sense. It's a, it's a big picture kind of book. That's why the symbols are so important. Uh, it's not a book you know, where if you decode it properly, you're going to find out that this word, when you add every, uh, when you repeat it six times, divide it by 12, multiply it by seven, it reveals that Hitler was you know, born in 19, whatever. You, know, you just can't do that with this book. I know that's cool and people are really able to make you know, great hay with that. But that's not what this is about. John tells us throughout this book, this calls for wisdom. In other words, Christians have to have biblical wisdom to understand what is in this book. There's a great blessing, John says, for those who read the words of this prophecy. And the opening chapter of this book tells us that John is referring to things that are about to take place because the time is near. And given the fact that the author tells us about things soon to transpire, we ought to be a little bit nervous about people who say, we have it all figured out, and it doesn't make any sense until Israel's a nation in 1948. The book of Revelation is written to Christians in the first century to explain to them things that are near. And if you read the book any way other than that, you're distorting and are going to distort the message of the book of Revelation and the contents therein. This is a wonderful book, if read properly. 
And if read properly, it's not scary, it's not weird, it's a divinely given commentary on those open-ended events in the Old Testament, in the life and ministry of Christ, and it's set against the backdrop of world history toward the end of the first century, and the fingerprints of the Roman Empire and Nero are all over it. Uh, That's the context in which we have to read the book of Revelation. If we do that, then it speaks to the church powerfully in every age. Not just to people living at the time of the end, and not just to those who are able to, to crack the code and figure out the secrets that are hidden in this book. The book of Revelation is unique in the New Testament in that it really combines three distinct literary genres. It is a book of prophecy. There are predictive elements in the book of Revelation, but it's not just prophecy. It's also a book that contains apocalyptic, and we'll talk about apocalyptic momentarily. Um, It's also a letter. We forget that if you look at the letters to the seven churches in the first uh, chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation and map those out, that's the postal route on the Roman road. These are seven historic churches and a letter sent to them to tell them about what is near. So, it's an epistle. It also has predictive prophecy, not the specific kinds of prophecies that people want answers to, but it does predict certain events, and it's apocalyptic. Now, when we talk about the genre of apocalyptic, um, we need to to exercise a fair bit of caution here. Um, It's a difficult task because this is not only a unique genre of ancient Near Eastern literature, um, apocalyptic is repeatedly utilized by biblical writers in distinctively eschatological uh, writings. An apocalyptic writer makes great use of symbols and numbers to describe the great conflicts between the forces of evil and righteousness that underlie the tumult of nations and empires. In apocalyptic literature, the course of world history is presented in such a way as to depict the present world as evil and destined to pass away. And this world stands in marked contrast to the world that is going to come and the world that one day God will will force and bring about to intervene in human history to establish His kingdom. So, in apocalyptic literature then, numbers and symbols are used to describe this bigger conflict between the fallen world, the world that is this age, and the world of the future, the age to come, as it breaks in on the present. This is standard New Testament eschatology, and we've talked about that at, at great length in earlier lectures. Um, the symbols and numbers then here will make perfect sense to somebody who knows what? Does Red Hal Lindsay's late great planet Earth? Or watch the, the, the uh, National Geographic, you know, uh, special on the, the book of Judas or whatever, you know, that'll have the key. No, the, the person familiar with the Old Testament is going to immediately get the symbols and the numbers. Why? Because all those symbols and numbers come from the Old Testament. That's why our dispensational friends need not worry about you all millenarians and your allegorical interpretation of the Bible, your non-literalistic reading of the Bible. No, the, the symbols and numbers come from the Old Testament. And so if you're a first century Jew and you hear the mention of locusts, you're going to say, oh, the book of Joel. 
And what did locusts do in the book of Joel? They came and destroyed everything. That's pretty easy. That's not hard to figure out. The number four, north, south, east, west. Oh, that's a symbol of the world because the four corners of the earth. Twelve. Hmm. Where's twelve found in the Old Testament? Twelve tribes. Twelve in the New Testament. Twelve apostles. I mean, it's not hard. But it's hard for us because we're Gentiles and we don't know the Old Testament. And our first instinct is not to say, oh, where would, what would, how would that be found in the Old Testament? We've been taught to read the book of Revelation with the morning newspaper or cable television in giving us the categories and explaining to us what the symbols in the book of Revelation are. No, 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 no. We go back to the Old Testament. That being said, the book of Revelation also plays out against the current political backdrop. And the current political backdrop is a worldwide empire whose leader fashions himself to be a demigod and who demands the worship of his subjects in opposition to Jesus Christ, who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So there is this uh, conflict motif throughout the book of Revelation. And it's a conflict motif that anybody living in the first century would immediately understand. Because if you are in any trade or guild, and you walk into the the city, outside your guild hall is probably a a statue dedicated to a god or goddess. Uh, You walk in the marketplace to conduct business, there's a statue perhaps of the emperor outside, and you can't enter that marketplace to conduct business unless you pay homage to the emperor and confess him to be Lord. So that's the, the, the man on the streets take on what's going on in this book. So it's not as weird and mysterious as people make it to be. And that's really a shame because it's a very wonderful and, and pastoral book when, when read in, those, uh, in that way. So the key then to understanding the book of Revelation is to understand the symbols. And I think it's obvious that John doesn't intend us to understand them literally as Um, Some of our dispensational friends have argued. Um, The symbols John uses are immediately apparent to Jewish Christians living when the book is written toward the end of the first century. Those folks knew the Old Testament better than we, and they knew where to look for the kind of wisdom that John asked the reader to find while reading this book. Now, I think a classic case of this, to, to, to make the case, we just mentioned the book of Joel, But you read, for example, in Revelation 9.3 of this creature that is a locust that flies. And our dispensational friends, not scholarly dispensational writers, but popular dispensational writers, the Bible prophecy pundits, I call them, and they're as much of an embarrassment to dispensational scholars as they are to us. Um, You'll find, for example, Hal Lindsey in his book, New World Coming, making a case that when John sees this locust, John is given a vision of a future war. John cannot conceive of a Bell UH-1B Huey helicopter. It's not a category for him. Uh, He may have seen a battle chariot or some such thing, but he has no idea of a war machine that flies. So if you look at a picture of a Bell helicopter with its kind of distinctive glass panels and the the way the rotors pitch and all that, it kind of looks from the front like a bug. Well, Lindsay deduces from that that John is given this vision of this battle off in the future. And so, 
He calls it a locust because he doesn't know what else to say about it. Now, we're all kind of grinning here because instead of going to, say, Exodus chapter 10 or Joel chapter 2, this is a picture, says Lindsay, of some modern technology. Now, the cynic in me could say that a cobra or an Apache doesn't look near as much like a locust as a bell uh, Huey does, but that's because how Lindsay was writing in the 70s when those things were not yet on the drawing board. You, you can see how much fun this can become. Um, I also think it's ironic that someone like Hal Lindsay has just argued repeatedly for the need to read the book of Revelation literally. And yet when you come to a symbol, he is going off on some wild tangent about bell helicopters. So, you know, I, I just challenge my dispensational friends, don't get too chippy about amillenarians allegorizing the book of Revelation because the, the prophecy pundits who have been moaning about our non-literal interpretation do far more damage and, and injustice to the book than we have ever done. So, you know, just kind of keep that in the back of your mind. At least be fair here. Um, John is not describing modern technology. For the first century reader, locusts are a symbol of judgment. And we know from the ancient world, from ancient writings, that the worst thing that could happen is a plague of locusts. Because when the plague of locusts came, they came in such numbers that the sky would turn black and they would literally destroy everything in their path. Uh, there was a locust plague in North Africa in the latter part of the 1800s that killed over 100,000 people. So, I mean, this is, this is a real menace because not only are the crops destroyed, but the ability to reseed them, they, they plug up the water supply, the animals die, and this is just cataclysmic when these things come. So the ancients knew this. They didn't have DDT or RAID. You know, they didn't have a UN that, uh, that dealt with these things before they could even get going. So this is a picture of judgment to an ancient people. Locusts destroy everything. So when John mentions locusts, what are we to think? Modern technology? No. But a destructive plague that comes on the earth. Now, prophets, on the other hand, speak forth as a kind of a divine representative. So, when apocalyptic writers describe the future in a kind of an interesting sense, apocalyptic takes on the form, to some degree, of prophecy. And so, you can see, I think, how easy it is for the lines between apocalyptic and prophecy to blur a bit, especially given the fact that these things are both present in the book of Revelation. And given the fact that Revelation does have apocalyptic throughout, it is prophetic in its authority and it is an epistle in its style, um, all of those things are combined in a way in which we don't see them elsewhere in the New Testament. So it's apparent then that the symbols are only going to make sense against the backdrop of the Old Testament. I mean, that's how we make sense of the book of Revelation. Now, Although some premillenarians contend that it's better to start with Revelation itself when seeking to answer the millennial question, given the need to see how these symbols are to be understood in their historical context, I think we have to be ever mindful that the, the thought world of John is Old Testament, life of Christ, and therefore he is a Jew who has seen his Messiah come and fulfill the Old Testament. That's, that's the, the mindset of the author. Now, although the Old Testament should be our anchor when reading the book of Revelation, 
Um, nevertheless, the book of Revelation does provide the final interpretation of the Old Testament. If the symbols are grounded in the Old Testament, come from the Old Testament, then the book of Revelation tells us what those symbols ultimately mean. And we'll talk more about this as we, as we move along. Remember in the book of Daniel, Daniel's told to seal up the vision and prophecy. He's told that the, the scroll's going to be sealed. John then sees the scroll unfold before his eyes. And that just tells us that the interpretation is going to be from the book of Revelation back to Daniel, not from Daniel to the book of Revelation. And in this, then we just collide head on with John Walvoord and other dispensations who will tell us that, look, the book of Daniel tells us what the book of Revelation is going to have to mean. And we say, no, it doesn't work quite like that. The other thing we have to argue is that John, not only is he steeped in the Old Testament, not only has he walked with Jesus and is probably the disciple that Jesus loved, I think that's pretty clear, John is also a man of the first century. And if church tradition is correct, John is a man who was in Jerusalem at the time when the city was surrounded by the Roman armies. And church tradition argues that John and other apostles fled from Jerusalem north into Asia Minor, when they saw that the city of Jerusalem was about to fall because they were conversant with Jesus' prophecy. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you know, hit the road and pray that it doesn't occur on the... So that's church tradition. We don't know that for sure. And of course, the dating of, of the Gospel of John, John's epistles in the book of Revelation are all unknown to us. And there is, of course, a debate in scholarly circles about whether the author of the book of Revelation, the visionary, is John the Elder or John the Apostle. And they see those as two different people. I'm pretty convinced that the one and the same author is the author of the Gospel, the Epistles, and the book of Revelation. And I think you can make a good case that this man, John, is very familiar, given his presence in Asia Minor and his exile to the island of Patmos. He's very familiar with Roman military power. He's very familiar with Roman political influence and cultural influence, and he knows the political intrigue of the Roman Empire. This man has not only fled from Jerusalem because of the destruction of the city, he's also been arrested and exiled to the island of Patmos, and he's seen Rome's power and, and earthly majesty firsthand. So he's not only steeped in the Old Testament, he's a man of the world in the sense that he understands uh, and, and is a witness to um, the geopolitical backdrop in which this book takes place. So rather than read the book of Revelation as though it were written to Christians living at the end of the 21st century, or at the beginning of the 21st century, we need to understand that the symbols and numbers meant something very powerful and very dramatic to the original audience in the first century. When John says these things are near, those symbols tell them what was near. And that's how we have to read the book of Revelation. So, we go back to the Old Testament. We find what the images mean there. We see how they're used throughout redemptive history. And we then make the case that these symbols are going to have a powerful meaning for Christians in all ages. Because even though the book of Revelation speaks primarily about events past, those events past are pictures to us of a continuing ebb and flow of history where these same things are going to continually reoccur before Christ comes back. But what do you mean by that? Well, we'll unpack this as we go along. But the Roman Empire in the first century becomes a picture to us of all of those God-hating empires that continually rise to the course of history. 
wherein the leader of these empires will see himself and ascribe to himself, he'll see himself as a god and he'll ascribe to himself divine prerogatives. And because God's people will not ascribe that glory and honor to him that he thinks he's due, he then turns on the church and turns on God's people and becomes a persecutor and he uses the power of the purse and the power of the sword to, to wage war on God's people. This is an occurrence not only up to the fall of the Roman Empire, uh, but then again in these empires that arise and come and persecute the church at various parts of, of the world. We see these empires existing today. So when our dispensational friends then appeal to the literal meaning of Revelation chapter 20, and especially given the fact that liberal Protestants have in many instances ignored the plain teaching of Scripture through a very rubbery, slippery hermeneutic, there's a real attraction to the dispensationalist argument. I mean, all Bible-believing Christians take the text of Scripture seriously, and they're rightly suspicious of people who don't take the text of Scripture seriously. And so it's argued that by our dispensational friends, look, if you don't take these symbols at face value, then you can make them say whatever you wish, especially in a book like the book of Revelation. And I'm saying that's not what we're doing, but let's follow that argument through and, and see where it's going to take us. Charles Ryrie, in his book Dispensationalism Today, it's, it's dated, but I think Ryrie still speaks for many dispensations when he says, we should, take every, we should give every word the same meaning that it has in normal use, whether we employ it in writing speaking, or in thinking. So, let me read that to you again. We should take every word, we should give every word the same meaning it has in normal usage, whether we employ it in writing, speaking, or in thinking. Now, on its face, that, that's an attractive, you know, plain sense, plain, or plain sense of the text kind of thing, but there's, there's a problem here. And Vern Poitras points it out in his book, Understanding Dispensationalists. He says, and I'm quoting, Words but not sentences have a literal or normal meaning. Moreover, for both words and sentences, context is all important in determining meaning at any given point in the act of communication. So, let's go beyond the words, put the words together in a sentence. What does a sentence mean? And how does that sentence fit in a particular context? The context of the book of Revelation is not historical narrative. It's apocalyptic prophecy. The very nature of this book tells us this book is going to be filled with symbols that represent things. And the images John draws are going to refer to events contemporaneous to him, i.e. the Roman Empire. So that's what we know before we even pick the book up. And so when John tells us then in Revelation chapter 20, verse 1, that he sees an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain, are we to understand that literally? If the angel has in his hands a literal key and a literal chain? Well, John Walford says yes. But when we look at the passage closely, we're already alerted by the literary genre of the book itself, as well as the immediate context that this vision is full of symbols. Chain, abyss, dragon, serpent, so forth. All of those things are symbols. Is Satan a literal fire-breathing dragon, a sea monster? No, but what does a sea monster represent? Evil. 
And the epitome of evil is, of course, Satan. So, in his vision, John sees all of these things, but the context tells us that there's something more than just the words. The words are symbolic of something else. Now, Poitras goes on to uh, argue in a, in a very, very helpful essay called Genre and Hermeneutics in Revelation chapter 20. He says there are four levels of communication we need to consider. And so, I spelled this out of my book in some detail so you can uh, go there for the, the uh, support. But let me just kind of go through this real quickly here. The first level of communication, the linguistic, has to do with the words themselves. And so at this level of the vision, John reports that an angel revealed things to him, the images of a chain, an angel, a key, and so on. As he writes these words down, he informs us of what the angel showed him, but there's a second level of communication at this point called the visionary level. But at a third level, the so-called referential level, the vision points to the actual historical reference in the images of the vision. The actual dragon, an actual serpent, the reality of the abyss, the passage of a thousand years, people raised from the dead, and so on. And then finally, there's a symbolic level. What do the images in the vision symbolize, if anything? Now, after all, it's the context, not the whims of the modern interpreter, that tell us what to expect, that these things revealed by the angel uh, do indeed symbolize something beyond their historical reference. Now, the problem with dispensationalism is, Poitras says, is that dispensationalists move directly from the linguistic level to the referential level without acknowledging any visionary or symbolic level of communication in Revelation chapter 20. In other words, they take the words and go right to the historical reference without acknowledging that these things might be visionary and might be symbolic. And we've been led by the context to look for that. It's not like we're making this up or ramming this on the text, the context itself kind of alerts us that this is what's going on here. And it's particularly problematic in Revelation chapter 20, where the literary genre, as well as the immediate context, tells us that in addition to the words and the the referential meanings, there are visionary and symbolic levels here as well. And so two times in this section, John says, I saw Adam. And that's used throughout Revelation repeatedly to indicate symbolic visions. So when John says, I saw, and everywhere else in Revelation, that at least it precedes Revelation chapter 20, that alerts us to the fact that John's having a vision. Then when he says here, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, it's the red lights going off. Oh, there's that word again that alerts me that John is seeing something that's visionary. So, I'm not reading things into the text. The text is alerting me to what it's about to say. And the words then are going to point beyond themselves to things that are symbolic. I know that from the very structure. So, the image of an angel with a chain and a key points to something beyond the historical reference. It points to other biblical theological themes elsewhere in Scripture. And so, again, our dispensational friends are to be commended for defending the inspiration and authority of the Bible, the great irony is, by denying the symbolic level of communication, it's the dispensationalist who ends up not interpreting the passage as the original author intended. I mean, it's the irony here, because the dispensationalist, while fighting for a literal interpretation, is fighting for an interpretation that the author does not intend us to take. 
So you give them an A for effort. And yet, on the other hand, the, the text itself is pointing us in an entirely different direction. And you can't ram that literal reading down on a passage that is never intended to be read uh, only at the referential level, but to point beyond itself to a symbolic level. And the key to understanding those symbols is not, what does this seem to mean? Uh, what do you think it means? Let's pray about it. Let's find the secret key of the book of Revelation. And, and No, we go back to the Old Testament. Now, if you want to see this done in a very scholarly and profoundly biblical way, purchase Greg Beale's commentary on the book of Revelation. And you will find in a 1,200-page commentary that every line, virtually every line in the book of Revelation leads us to a significant bit of Old Testament background. And it proves the thing I'm trying to argue far better than I can, that the book of Revelation is a divinely given commentary on all those open-ended themes in the Old Testament and in the life of Christ. This book closes up, wraps up all those unfinished loose ends, and therefore everything in it, while taking place against the backdrop of the Roman Empire and its persecution of God's people, all those symbols and their meanings are found in the Old Testament. And so this is why all millenarians say the literal interpretation misses the mark because it ends up being the literalistic interpretation. The literal interpretation of plain sense is these are symbols. They point to things elsewhere, and those things elsewhere are Old Testament images. So whenever something appears in the book of Revelation, locusts, scorpions, thousand years, the numbers 10, 12, 4, 3, 6, 7, all of those, and they're used throughout the book of Revelation, all of those things come from the Old Testament. So it's, it's not like we are spiritualizing or allegorizing as we're often accused. Now, I'd like you to take out the chart I passed out a little bit earlier. And um, they'll pass them out to you. Um, we're going to look at the relationship now between Revelation 19 and 20. Now, as I mentioned, on its face, one of the strongest arguments for the premillennial position is that Revelation 19 describes the second coming of Christ. Therefore, Revelation 20 must take place after Christ has come back. And I'm going to argue here that Revelation 19 and 20 are parts of different visions. So let's go through that in the time we have uh, this evening. And that should get us as far as... Uh, that should get us in a position then to unpack Revelation chapter 20 uh, in detail next time. So, Okay. Not only is it problematic to interpret the symbols used in apocalyptic literature literally, it's also problematic to read the book of Revelation through chronologically. When reading historical narrative, you start at the beginning and you read through the narrative until you come to the end. And the events described follow this chronological pattern. For example, Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel. Luke says in the opening verses of his Gospel, I'm writing to you, Theophilus, in an orderly manner. Which means, oh, Luke's going to be chronological. Matthew's Gospel kind of follows the life of Christ chronologically, 
But it's structured differently than Luke's Gospel. It's not strictly chronological. Because you have sections of historical narrative followed by a group of, of sayings of Jesus. More historical narrative. more It's more topical. Whereas Luke's Gospel is chronological. So even in the Gospels themselves, we have a, a fair bit of difference. Here with the book of Revelation, the events are not like that of historical narrative. And I'm going to argue that the book of Revelation is a series of seven repeating visions. And that's the nature of apocalyptic literature. It keeps recapitulating the same events from a different perspective in a series of different visions. That's foreign to us. We don't have literature like that today. Now, Dennis Johnson in his wonderful book... um, wonderful commentary in the book of Revelation, Triumph of the Lamb, uh, makes a case that I, I think, this helped me, this is like the light flash when I saw this. And I'll just blatantly copy his, his illustration because it's so good. If you're watching a football game on television, out in the producer's truck, the, the broadcast truck, there will be 8 to 10 to 12 cameras looking at the game from all different angles. So, if you were to look at the game from the camera that's up by the press box, you see the, the field as a whole, and you see the action pretty much as it takes place on the, the whole range of the field. Then there'll be isolation cameras, and there'll be one camera that'll be right down the line of scrimmage at an angle, so later on instant replay you can see an offsides or uh, you know somebody uh, uh, legal procedure, whatever. You, you kind of get a sense of somebody jumping the line. Then you'll have isolated cameras on individual players, a wide receiver going out for a pass covered by a defensive back, a running back making a spectacular play, a quarterback making a great throw. All of that is fused together so that what you see on television is but one camera at a time of all these different cameras, and someone's orchestrating this, so all those different images come together, and what you see is kind of a seamless um, um, broadcast where all these different cameras are presented in such a way that you won't really know that they're 8, 10, 12 cameras. Well, think of that in the book of Revelation. A camera focuses in chapters 1 through 3 on the churches. And then Revelation chapter 20 on the destruction of Satan. So all this is going on at the same time, but it's from a different angle. It's a different look at the same thing. And I think that's a great way to understand apocalyptic literature. Each one of these visions is a different look at the same period of time from a different angle and from a different perspective. Um, and when you look at Revelation like that, you have kind of a, a general pattern. History contains each of these things. They repeat themselves over and over. And if the book of Revelation, the pattern that I, I think is found there is correct then these things intensify and get worse toward the end. But I would argue that there are seven main visions in this book, and these visions basically recapitulate and that they look at the same period of time from different perspectives. Now, William Hendrickson's commentary on Revelation, More Than Conquerors, which, by the way, was the first book ever published by Baker Bookhouse, still in print, still kind of a, a staple, he basically breaks the book of Revelation down into seven visions, um, Christ in the middle of the seven golden lampstands, first three chapters. The book with the seven seals, chapters four to seven. The seven trumpets of judgment, eight to eleven. The woman and the man-child persecuted by the dragon, twelve to fourteen. The seven bowls of wrath, chapters fifteen and sixteen. 
the fall of the harlot and the beast, 17 and 19, and then the judgment on the dragon, followed by the new heaven and new earth, Revelation chapter 20. All of it is to say that Hendrickson argues that Revelation 20 is not chronologically after 19, but that Revelation chapter 20 begins an entirely new vision. So this is a, a beginning of the seventh and final vision that takes us from Satan being bound all the way to a new heaven and new earth. It's a, a heavenly look. Uh, it's a look on a heavenly scene with references to Satan's persecution of the church, uh, which is a different look, say, than the, the same period of time viewed from the perspective of the churches in chapters 1 through 3. Now, Hendrickson's outline has been modified greatly. Most, most uh, reform writers now argue that Revelation is um, there are five main sections, breaking the visions down in a similar way, and I would steer you to uh, Beale or Johnson for the technical discussion on that. But the fact that the book is a series of consecutive visions, each depicting the course of the present age from a different perspective, should give us due warning that we're not to read Revelation with the assumption that because something appears in an earlier chapter, the historical fulfillment of that vision must occur in history prior to that which is revealed in a later chapter. What we find in chapters 1 through 3 doesn't necessarily come historically before Revelation 20 and 22. It may be the same period of time. Now, that just drives our dispensational friends crazy because they'll say, no, 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 you start at chapter 1, you read through to chapter... Well, maybe not with apocalyptic literature. And maybe the proper way to read it is to say these periods of time are the same period, just viewed from a different perspective. Um, The churches... The bowls, the judgment, the harlot, the destruction of Satan and so on. All occurring at the same time, but not necessarily uh, chronological. Now, let me give you a concrete instance of this so you you see what I mean, so you don't think I'm making this up. Um, One place where we see recapitulation very, very clearly is to contrast uh, our chapter. We're discussing Revelation chapter 21 through 6 with an earlier section of the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verses 7 through 11. And let's see if you don't think chapter 20 is recapitulating chapter 12. In verse 7 of Revelation 12, we have heavenly scene. In verse 1 of chapter 20, we have a heavenly scene. In verse 8 of Revelation chapter 12, we have an angelic battle against Satan and his host. Well, in verse 2 of Revelation 20, we have a presupposed angelic battle with Satan. In verse 9 of chapter 12, Satan is cast to earth. But in verse 3 of Revelation 20, Satan is cast into the abyss. In verse 9 of chapter 12, the angel's evil opponent is called the great dragon, the ancient servant, the one who is called the devil and Satan, the one deceiving the whole inhabited earth. Well, look in Revelation chapter 20. The angel's opponent is called the dragon, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, who is restrained from deceiving the nations any longer, only to be loosed at the end to deceive the nations throughout the earth. Verse 12b of Revelation 12. Satan's expression of a great wrath because he knows he has little time. Verse 3 of chapter 20. Satan is to be released for a short time after his imprisonment. 
Satan's fall resulting in the kingdom of Christ, verse 10, and the saints. Satan's fall resulting in the kingdom of Christ and the saints, verse 4. So you can just see the parallels here. And the charts replicated in, in a case for all millennials if you, if you want to take a closer look at that. So I think just one instance here, the obvious parallels between chapters 12 and 20 of Revelation is just greatly important for a number of reasons. For one thing, it means that Revelation 12 and 20 are both speaking about the present period of time. They're not identical, but they have picked the same events and they interpret each other. They're different looks at the same period of time. And if true, then this is really a serious blow to premillennialism that argues that chapter 20 follows chronologically after chapter 19. If John is giving a series of visions, each of which depict the present age from different camera angles, and Revelation 12 and 20 are both describing the same events from different perspectives, then it should be clear that the picture in Revelation 20 is of a present millennial age rather than of a future millennial age to dawn after Christ's return. Now, in the time we have left tonight, I want to give you a little bit more technical arguments as to why that is the case. The main premillennial defense against this line of argumentation is to say, look, no such recapitulation exists. George Ladd, a fine scholar, no such indication of recapitulation is to be found. On the contrary, chapters 18 to 20 appear to represent a connected series of visions. Chapter 18 tells of the destruction of Babylon. Chapter 19 tells of the destruction of the beast and the false prophet. Chapter 20 moves on to speak to tell of the destruction of Satan himself. So, Ladd says, look, 18, 19, 20, they're, they're chronological. That's really clear. Well, there are a number of reasons to take issue with uh, George Ladd because if premillenarians are correct, let's, for the sake of argument, grant that Revelation 20 is describing a period of time after Revelation chapter 19. Then what happens? In Revelation 19, Christ returns, followed by a thousand years of peace, right? What happens at the end of a thousand years of peace? Suppose, Revelation 19, Christ comes back. Revelation 20 establishes His kingdom, His peaceable kingdom. What happens at the end of the kingdom? The nations revolt against Christ. You have a second fall if you're premillennial. You can't escape this. You have to face the problem of evil in the millennial age. And this is the question I've asked throughout this series again and again and again. Are we really to believe that Christ comes back, establishes His kingdom, while Jesus Himself rules over the nations, and at the end of that, the nations revolt against His rule? And there's a second fall. Complicated by the problem, how do people get into that thousand-year period in natural bodies? Our premillenarian friends must explain how people escape the second coming of Christ without being judged and either redeemed or punished eternally. There's no way to get people into this thousand years in natural bodies. We've argued this again and again and again. Just, it's just not there. So, if you're going to say as Ladd does, 19, second coming, Revelation 20, millennial age, 
you have to explain A, how people get in their natural bodies and B, how there can be evil on the earth after Jesus has been ruling for a thousand years. You have a huge problem. Now, there's another huge problem for our dispensational friends and that is the judgment of the nations. Um, In Revelation 19, we read the following. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth will come a sharp sword which will strike down the nations and will rule them with an iron scepter. Now, clearly, that's a picture of Christ's divine judgment on the nations at his return. So, when Christ comes back, Revelation 19, right? He judges the nations. And that, that's very clear, on, even on premillennial presuppositions. We all agree on that. But in Revelation 20, we're told that Satan is bound for the express purpose of preventing the nations from being deceived. What nations? They've just been destroyed in judgment. Now, all of a sudden, they're back again? So, what remains of the nations to be protected from satanic deception? And again, the scope of the problem for those who hold to a sequential relationship between 19 and 20 is really problematic when we start looking at the role of the nations in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 13, we read that the dragon gave the beast his authority to rule over every tribe, people, language, and nation. The result of this satanic empowering of the beast is that all the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. They're deceived by the false signs and wonders, the false prophet, and so on. Then in Revelation 16, we read of how the kings of the whole earth are gathered gathered for the day of battle at Armageddon. And by the way, I don't take Armageddon to be the Valley of Megiddo. I would refer you to Meredith Klein's just brilliant essay that this is Armageddon, which is the, the eschatological battle, it has nothing to do with a, the plains of Megiddo. And you can look at Klein's uh, argument elsewhere for that. But the point is, the kings are gathered for battle. Jesus returns like a thief in judgment, verse 15. Then in Revelation 19, 19, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. Who are these people? Well, they're those who worship the beast and took his image. These are the nations. We're told that the beast and the false prophet are captured. Two of them are thrown alive in the lake of fire. Indeed, the rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider and the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. So here in Revelation 13, 16, and 19, we have three different pictures of the same event, evidence of recapitulation. And when Jesus Christ returns, it's to judge the nations. Now, if Christ judges the nations at his second advent, how does this relate to John's reference to the nations in Revelation chapter 20? It makes no sense whatsoever to speak of protecting the nations from deception by Satan after they've just been destroyed by Christ at his judgment. It just doesn't make any sense. They've both been destroyed. And... The image here of the birds judging comes from Ezekiel 39. This is a famous scene in the Old Testament. It's a picture of judgment in Ezekiel 38 and 39. The mysterious destruction of Gog and Magog who appear again in Revelation chapter 20. So the prophet Ezekiel in 
chapter 39, foretells of this gruesome scene in which wild animals and birds are summoned to feast on the remains of a defeated army, the army of Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Birds and animals, says Ezekiel, will eat the flesh of mighty men, drink the blood of the princes of the earth. At my table you will eat your fill of horses and riders, mighty men, soldiers of every kind, declares the sovereign Lord. Whoa, that's a, that's a nasty scene. And then in Revelation 19, verse 17, listen to what John says. And I saw an angel standing in the sun and cried out in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, since you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, mighty men, horses, riders, flesh of all people, free, small, slave, and great. This is a picture of the day of judgment. When Christ comes back. Judgment of the nations, the kings, all unbelievers, and that imagery of Gog and Magog being eaten by the birds. Notice the parallel here. The birds get to eat the flesh of those destroyed by Christ's wrath. What are believers doing? We're eating at the marriage supper of Christ the Lamb. So the creatures eat in judgment on the victims of judgment, while God's people are welcomed into the great and glorious messianic feast. Um, I just think this is really difficult for our premillennial friends to explain. And in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 to 10, as we'll see when a thousand years are over, the nations rebel against God's city and His people. Gog and Magog gather for battle. Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 to 10 is a picture of the same thing in Revelation chapter 19. It's a recapitulation. Or else, on the literal premillennial position, The nations are destroyed in Revelation 19, judged, consumed. Then when the millennium begins, they reconstitute, they organize again, and then they revolt against Christ again a thousand years after Jesus has ruled them. Add to that, how can you as a premillenarian justify having people alive in natural bodies during this time? You cannot. And how do you explain the second fall at the end of the millennial age? You cannot. So I think the relationship between 19 and 20 really falls apart on close inspection. And I don't think this is an argument in favor of premillennialism. I think this is a great weakness of premillennialism because it ends up pitting all these judgments against each other instead of seeing them as one and the same event. So... We'll pick up where we left off next time and we'll go through a verse-by-verse exposition then of Revelation chapter 20. And we'll flesh this stuff out a little bit more uh, in detail as we look at it in the context of of Revelation chapter 20 itself and and we'll kind of put some of these principles we've been talking about into practice. Any questions? I hope you can see that I think this is a very, very strong argument against premillennialism. And... um, Greg Bill does a very good job of this in his book, as does Dennis Johnson in Triumph of the Lamb. And I think you'll find a pretty good case in my book because I basically borrow Johnson and Beale's arguments. So, uh, George Ladd's argument is there's no evidence here of recapitulation. And Revelation 18, 19, and 20, just on their face, are consecutive. And you all millenarians are crazy because there's no evidence here at all of recapitulation. And my response to Ladd is to say... I think there's a lot of evidence here for recapitulation. And I don't think you, know, you, you dismiss it to your peril. It's called historic premillennialism because 
Historic premillenarians believe this is a position of the early church fathers, Irenaeus, Papias, and others. And I would refer uh, you and they to Chuck Hill's book, uh, Regnum Calorum, in which Chuck Hill, who was a classmate of mine at Westminster, does a very good job. He's now a professor of New Testament RTS. He does a very good job of showing that the church fathers not only had premillennial representation, but they also had amillennial representation. And there are many, many church fathers who argue that conversion is the first resurrection. And that is the classical Christian position. That the first resurrection occurs when we're born again and or when we die. And that Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of the harvest and we've already been raised by virtue of our conversion. So the bodily resurrection, it takes place in two stages. First, your spiritual resurrection, then a bodily resurrection, which is the same pattern. So all this, I think, really makes it difficult for premillenarians to... Yeah, I think, I think there's some... The, the question is, uh, a lot of these arguments, lads and others, are, are raised in an era of the wide acceptance and increasing acceptance of higher criticism. And you get a literalist reading of these things in the book of Revelation to, as kind of a response to some of the, the critical, critical views. I think there's a lot to that. I also think that a lot of premillennial reaction against... Amillennialism is inherently grounded in the fact that the Roman Church is amillennial. Um, one of the uh, John MacArthur's uh, defenders, who was a graduate of Westminster Seminary, surprisingly, has argued in his book on future Israel, Barry Horner, that I'm I'm Roman Catholic in my eschatology. You know, I'm on record as saying I think the papacy might actually be Antichrist. So <clears throat> I, I don't think I'm exactly very amenable to Rome in my understanding of eschatology. So, a lot of it is reacting against things and I think you know, one of the things that we as millenarians need to do is not react against the goofy dispensationalists and go off on some other wild thing because we laugh at Helen Lindsay's just you know, nutty interpretation of locusts. Um, we have to see it for what it is and not overreact and, and go so far the other way that... I frankly think one of the reasons why preterism is popular is because it's the anti-dispensationalism. I mean, if dispensationalists push everything off to the future, well, we'll show them, we'll just push everything off to the past. And I don't think that's exactly helpful either. We have to be very, very careful. What was Luther's line about uh, so many heresies are like the drunk trying to get on the horse, you know, he overbalances and he gets up okay but then pitches off on the other side? I I think we have to be careful not to do that. So, I know when I was a dispensationalist working through this, I found the prophecy pundits, people like Jack Van Imp and Hal Lindsey, sincere as they are, they love Jesus and try and do their best, I'll grant them, you know, A for effort. But their views and conclusions are just nutty. And so you, you distance yourself from that. You're kind of embarrassed by that kind of sensationalist, you're tying every event to, to something that's happening in the Middle East to the point where yeah, yeah, we've heard this before, so let's just you know, run away from it and, and say it's all fulfilled and we don't have to even deal with this. I think that's, you have to be very careful not to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the dispensationalist notion that the rapture can occur at any moment uh, ends up, you know, with how many comings of Christ are there? Well, he doesn't touch the earth, so it's not a coming. 
Well, you keep telling us it's a coming. Yeah. 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 And you better be ready. And it's it grows out of decision regeneration, and you know there whole, there's just a whole lot of theology that under, underlies that. And that's why we have to, as we talk about prophecy, continually identify our operating assumptions and continually test them. Um, the only honest way to do this is to be real clear about what our methods are and let the other side have at it so if we're right, we'll withstand the arguments. And I, after having been trying to defend premillennialism for five years, um, the argument that finally did me in was evil in the millennium. I mean, that, that's just a real difficult problem if you're a premillenarian. You know, I don't have to explain how people in resurrected bodies live next door to people in natural bodies. But you have to explain how Jesus rules over them for a thousand years and the nations revolt, but the nations were already judged before the thing even began. So where the nations come from? I, I can't imagine government is a good thing. It's bad enough in this age. It's here only as a common grace institution keep us from killing each other. Are we really to believe when Jesus rules over the earth, he's going to reestablish California? You know? And that's kind of what you know, our dispensational friends are saying. There's actually going to be, you know, Zimbabwe and, and um, the United States and the nations, I guess, you know, come back and are judged. It just doesn't make any sense. So I, I know the argument that Revelation 19, second coming, followed by millennium, on its face looks really powerful. When you start cutting into that, it, it's, it's really problematic. Well, let's close in prayer. Our gracious God and merciful Father, we are thankful that Your Word is so clear that our blessed Savior does indeed triumph over all the forces of evil and that... He is indeed ruling and reigning even as we speak until He makes all His enemies a footstool for His feet and swallows up our greatest enemy, death, and the glorious triumph of the resurrection at the end of the age. Father, we pray that as we consider these things, we would be ever mindful of the severity of that judgment that is coming and the fact that we have been delivered from that judgment by the death and resurrection of our blessed Savior Jesus. And for that, we give you thanks and praise in His glorious name. Amen.